let me just reiterate what Bonnie said there about next week. I really hope that you will plan to be here and to stay afterwards for a congregational meeting. It'll happen right after worship. Uh, Lord willing, we are on the road toward electing elders, which uh, I'm really excited about and excited to share with you, but you'll have to wait until next week to hear all about it. So please plan to be there and you can hear all about what we're going to do. Okay, if you've got a Bible, open it up to the book of Colossians. I'm going to use this uh, music stand today because I actually have uh, a few things that I wanted to read to you um, and want to make sure I get them right. Uh, We are in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 17. We're looking at a big chunk of scripture that is not only, um, you know, somewhat lengthy, but is jam-packed with amazing stuff. So I just want you to know we're not going to get to all of it. We're going to just barely skim the surface. Um, We could probably spend about four or five weeks in a row on just this passage. It's so good. So I would encourage you, maybe go home today and throughout the week and dig into this great passage of Scripture. Okay, listen now as I read from God's Word, Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised or circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, But Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word today, for it is the power to change us. We pray, Lord, that you would open our ears, open our eyes, and soften our hearts, that we might come and kneel before your authoritative word, that we might know more clearly who you are, that we might see Jesus, and in seeing him, might desire to love and follow him more. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. 
well, it's it, danger of kind of hurting my own heart to, to remind you of this is that a few weeks ago, uh, my boys and I and my brother and my brother traveled to Dallas to the Texas versus Oklahoma football game. Uh, we had a blast. It was amazing. If you if you witnessed it as a casual fan, it was probably about the best game of the year. If you witnessed it as a Texas fan, it was one of the most painful experiences of your life. And if you've ever seen or been to this game, it really is an amazing experience. It's in Dallas. It's, it's you know, in between both, both schools. It's always in the same place, and it's always in the historic Cotton Bowl Stadium. And the Cotton Bowl is round. It's completely closed in. And the way that they do this game is that half of the fans sit on one side of the stadium, and the other half sit on the other. And so because it's not a home game for either team, you get it split evenly every year. Right down the 50-yard line, half of the stadium is burnt orange and the other half is crimson. And it's amazing. It's so fun just to see, you know, when one team scores, half of the stadium stands up and cheers and the other team scores, the other half stands up and cheers. And so all that you see everywhere are these fans and great numbers of both of them wearing their team's colors. Except every now and then you might have that one weird outlier, like we saw as we were getting up and going to, you know, get a hot dog or something in this sea of burnt orange, because we're sitting on the Texas side, is this one guy decked out from head to toe in Texas Tech Red Raider gear. And you're like, what are you doing here? Why? Did you, you just decide it was too long of a drive to Lubbock and pulled over in Dallas and thought, I'll just catch a game here? It was bizarre. Because his clothing just didn't match the occasion at all. And I love the illustration that Paul lays out here in this passage about wearing the right clothing. Maybe part of it is because I like clothes, so I enjoy clothing illustrations. But I love it because he really gets to the heart here, I think, of the connection between who we are and what we do. Who we are and the clothing that we put on, what actually we show to the world, the way that we live our lives, the way that we walk, it matters. They are connected. But before we go on, I do think it's really important to talk about how they are connected. There's a really important word, actually, that he begins with here. And if you've got an ESV or if you're following along on the screen, it starts with, if, then, if you're reading an NIV, it says, since then. I actually really like the NIV translation, translation there instead. Because when we hear the word if, we hear doubt. But really, what is behind Paul's thought here is not doubt, but certainty. Since you have been raised with Christ, here is now how to live. Here's the appropriate clothing to wear. And this is so important for us because Christianity is utterly different than any other system of thought or philosophy or religion that the world has ever seen. Because every other religion, every other philosophy, every other system of thought in the world is based on do. Here's what you need to do in order to be made right, in order to get all the stuff that you want in order to get into God's good graces, in order to achieve the things that you want out of life, here's the list of things that you've got to do. Places you've got to travel to. Moral codes you have to fulfill. Checklists that you have to mark off. But here's the thing. How can you ever really know if you've done it all? How can you ever really know if you've completed all the checklists? 
And so you're always on this seesaw of doubt, wondering, well, gosh, have I really done all that I need to do? Am I okay? That's no place to live. That's no way to live. But the gospel is utterly different. Because what the gospel says is that Jesus has done something that we could never do. That Jesus has done and completed something that makes us right with God. It's his life and his death and his resurrection that unites us to God. And that gives us confidence. So we're not always on that seesaw of doubt wondering whether or not that we've done stuff or not. Christianity is based on done, not on do. However, that being said, there is still a connection, isn't there, between who I am and what I do. And though my identity is not based on my activity, my activity should be driven by my identity. And that's much of Paul's argument here. Since you have been raised with Christ, since you have been buried with him in his death, since you have been raised with him in his resurrection, since you have been united to him in his death and resurrection, since your life, Paul says, is now hidden with Christ in God, here's the way that you are to live your life. And he launches into this beautiful illustration of the clothing that we are supposed to take off and put on. Because there is clothing that's appropriate, isn't there, for the occasion. And when Paul says, you belong now to the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is reigning and sitting down even at the, at the right hand of the Father, you belong to that kingdom, so why would you ever wear the clothing of the old kingdom? And so he starts into this list of what we need to take off, the negative list. You'll find it here actually in verse 5. Let me just read it again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then he skips down a little bit and says, put them all away, including anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk, and then don't lie to each other. He's kind of got three categories here of what we're to take off. First, there's sexual immorality. All of those first few words he's talking about include ways of acting out of accordance with what God has said is appropriate sexually. And we're not going to talk much about it, but let me just say, if you are living in this world right now, please don't hide it. Don't sweep it under the rug. Tell someone, come find me, and I would love to help you with it. He then moves on to covetousness. And this one's actually both distinct from and connected to the sexual immorality. Remember in the 10th commandment, God says, don't covet. And what's the first thing he says not to covet? Your neighbor's wife. And isn't it interesting that even speaking here 2,000 years ago into a different culture that's uh, across the ocean from us, he's nailing in on two things that we still struggle with in our culture. We live in a highly sexualized and highly desirous of consumer things culture. All of these things are totally relevant to us. But then he goes on even to talk about how we relate to one another. That's his next list here. He says, uh, the way that we relate to one another, we have to put away anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and lying. This is the clothing of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom that we don't belong to anymore if we are Christians. Then he moves on and gives us a nice positive list, of course. Here's what to put on. Now that you've taken that off, here's what to put on. And it's beautiful. Verse 12, listen again. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if you have a complaint against each other, forgiving each other, and above all, put on love. Paul says that having been raised with Christ, we are to put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and forgiveness and love. So is that it? Can we just close things up and pray and say, good, you've been raised with Christ. Now put on the right things and take off the wrong things and we should be all good to go. Good, solid nine-minute sermon. Well, unfortunately, I don't think so because there's actually a, a missing piece here that we need to talk about. I was introduced to this word this week. Maybe you've heard it. Orthocardia. It may be a completely made-up word, but I like it. Orthocardia. If you're, if you're a linguist, you're kind of already going through your head and what this means. But you've probably heard, you know, uh, orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right belief or right proclamation, right, uh, right confession. That's orthodoxy. And maybe you've even heard orthopraxy, which is the right action. And we often talk about those two things. We talk about the right belief being formed in us. We want orthodox doctrine. And we talk about orthopraxy, the right kind of behaviors being formed in us. We want ortho, orthopraxy uh, in our lives. But there's actually a step in between. And it's the formation of our hearts. And I want to argue to you this morning that what Paul is trying to do here with this young church in Colossae, and what God desires to see in us this morning is actually orthocardia, the shaping of our hearts that leads to the kind of clothing that we are to wear. So if God wants to shape our hearts here, I think it's appropriate maybe that we spend a little time doing some self-examining. What is the shape of our heart as a culture, as a church, as individuals, and I want to just look at a few things. And first, let's talk about politics. I know everybody starts squirming in their chairs when I say that word. But how do we as Christians expose even the shape of our hearts in the way that we interact politically? There's a guy named David French who's a, a, a political commentator and a Christian uh, he writes some updates, uh, some, uh, some blogs and, and emails. I'm on his email list, and I got this this week. And he had actually, I think, some really helpful things to say. Just listen to the way that French talks about the connection between orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and what's in the middle, orthocardia. He said this, The real crisis in American Christian political engagement isn't truly over Christian positions, Opposition to abortion, to take one example, is vital and just. And there's ample room for good faith Christian disagreement over the proper response to American challenges ranging from race to economics to immigration to sexuality to the pandemic. But he said the real crisis instead is a crisis of the heart. Our orthodoxy is undermined by our actions and our actions spring forth from the deepest parts of our being. At a time of rising antipathy, a Christian political community should blaze forth with a radiant countercultural embrace of kindness and grace. Instead, all too many of us have forgotten a fundamental truth. There are no right people to hate. 
You hear what he's saying? He's saying that our actions and the way that Christians so oftentimes engage in political discussions and in the political sphere actually reveal the shape of our hearts. And what we have so often done is we've said, you know what, if you're going to engage in politics, it's a messy business. And you know, the other side, where they're going to fight hard. So what you really need to do is clothe yourself in the clothing of the culture so that you can fight the wars of the culture. But God is saying something completely different to us here. What God is saying to us here in Colossians 3 is that we don't belong to that world. Having been raised with Christ, we have new clothing to wear. And we can wear that clothing into any discussion. And friends, we must wear that clothing into any discussion. Of course, this happens in more than just our political engagement. This happens even in the church. And you probably have seen it or felt it or read about it. But the evangelical church right now is really fractured. And it's really fractured not generally because of our beliefs. It's really not about orthodoxy. We're really not arguing even over doctrine as much as what is fracturing us is the kind of action that's driven by our hearts. You can see this in the church broadly. You can see it in our own denomination where we are not arguing over orthodox belief, but we are arguing in a way that puts on the language, that puts on the clothing of the culture, and we are acting actually in hatred toward one another. All of these things that Paul just said we're supposed to take off are oftentimes happening actually right in the church. Now, I will say this. I just got back this weekend from uh, our our presbytery's quarterly meeting, and um, you should be encouraged. We belong to an amazing presbytery. We met a long time. It took almost two full days to talk about the stuff we needed to talk about. And we talked about hard stuff, and we voted on things, and there was a lot of disagreement. But by and large, we treated each other with love and fairness and kindness and respect, and it was beautiful. So be encouraged that there are places in the church, and you actually live in one of them, where this is actually happening. I love our presbytery. I love the men in our presbytery. I love to get, to get up and go hug one of these men who just voted differently than me on something. And that happens all the time. And it happens because our hearts are actually being shaped in the right way. Okay, we talked about politics, the church. Let's even get down to a smaller level. What about us and our own hearts and our lives? Well, of course, this kind of, you know, bad heart disease that creates bad action can happen with us individually as well, can't it? I mean, think about our marriages. So oftentimes in my marriage, it's not that I want the wrong things. I oftentimes want really good things. Closeness, intimacy, love with one another. But how do I oftentimes go and go about trying to find those things? It's in anger or it's in passive aggression or it's in removal, or it's in not complete honesty. I think sometimes I've got to put on the clothing of the culture if I want to get the things out of my life that I want to get. God is saying, actually, that that action reveals something in me, and that something is actually a really sick heart that needs to be changed. So how do we fix it? 
How do we go about fixing our hearts? Here's another big word to introduce to you, the word catechesis. Some of you know that. It's just a word that means teaching by repetitive kind of question and answer. It's a repetitive teaching that actually trains our hearts. And here's the thing, is that we are catechized every day. There's another uh, great article that came out this week, and a guy named Peter Weiner, uh, writing in the Atlantic, wrote this article, and, and Weiner is actually a member of a PCA church in the D.C. area. I want you to hear, and this is kind of long, but I want you to sit back and hear what he says about catechesis, about the way that we are formed in our culture and in our churches. Listen to this. What we're seeing is massive discipleship failure caused by massive catechesis failure. James Ernest, the vice president and editor-in-chief at Erdman's, a publisher of religious books, told, told me. Ernest was one of several fixtures, figures that I spoke with who pointed to catechism, the process of instructing and informing people through teaching as the source of the problem. The evangelical church in the U.S. over the last five decades has failed to form its adherents into disciples, so there's a great hollowness. All that was needed to cause the implosion that we've now seen was a sufficiently provocative stimulus, and that stimulus came. Culture catechizes, says Alan Jacobs, a distinguished professor of humanities in the honors program at Baylor University. Culture teaches us what matters and what views we should take about what matters. Our current political culture, Jacobs argues, has multiple technologies and platforms for catechizing. Television, radio, Facebook, Twitter, podcasts are among them. People who want to be connected to their political tribe, the people that they think are like them, the people they think are on their side, they subject themselves to its catechesis all day long, every single day, hour after hour after hour. On the flip side, many churches aren't interested in catechesis at all. They focus instead on entertainment because entertainment is what keeps people in the seats and coins in the offering plate. But as Jacobs points out, even those pastors who really are committed to catechesis get to spend on average less than an hour a week teaching their people. Sermons are short. Only some churchgoers attend adult education classes and even fewer attend Bible studies in small groups. Cable news, however, is always on. So if people are getting one kind of catechesis for half an hour a week and another for dozens of hours per week, which one do you think will win out? That's not a problem limited to the faithful on one side of the aisle. This is true of both the Christians on the left and the Christians on the right, Jacob said. People come to believe what they are most thoroughly and intensively catechized to believe, and that catechesis comes not from the church, but from the media they consume, or rather the media that consumes them. The churches have barely better than a snowball's chance in hell of shaping most people's lives. But when people's values are shaped by the media they consume, rather than by their religious leaders and their communities, that has consequences. What, are all those, what all those media want is engagement, and engagement is most reliably driven by anger and hatred. They make bank when we hate each other. And so that hatred migrates into the church, which doesn't have the resources to resist it. See, what he's saying is that our hearts are sick because they have been catechized by the sickness of the world. And if our hearts are sick, if there is no orthocardia, then our orthodoxy is not ever going to show up in our orthopraxy. 
let me also say that I love this church. And one of the reasons I love this church is because I do think this heart is very evident amongst us. The culture that is evident here, the ethos, the feeling of this church is really, really wonderful. How do we keep that? Well, Paul actually tells us, and this is where we're going to finish. Look again at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. You hear that? The way that we actually continue, the way that we shape our hearts, the way that we see orthocardia formed and shaped in us is through word and community and worship. He comes right out of the gate saying this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it take up residence in you and let it do so in expansive ways. God's word changes our hearts and in our hearts change, our lives change. A former pastor of mine used to say, let the word of God run through your house like a two-year-old. If you've ever had a two-year-old, you know that's a lot of running. It even makes a mess sometimes. Let God's word loose in your life. Let it be a part of your daily activity and your conversation and your thought life and your questioning and your family's life. Bring God's word into your life and let it dwell in you richly and you will see your hearts shaped. The next thing he talks about is community. He says, teaching and admonishing who? One another in all wisdom. This beautiful picture that Paul paints here is of Christians walking side by side with one another and pointing one another to Jesus, caring for each other when we fall, picking one another up, helping one another when we veer off the path, teaching, admonishing when necessary, forming one another as we walk toward Jesus together. We get to actually help each other. I love the way Paul Tripp says it. He says, your walk with God is a community project. That is true. If we are going to be formed as disciples, we are going to be formed together. And then the third thing he talks about is worship and a specific portion of worship. Did you get this? It's singing. In fact, one way you could translate this Greek is actually, is actually to teach and admonish one another by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. When we get together and we raise our voices to the Lord to, with one another, it forms and shapes our hearts. It's actually why it's so important that we sing good words. It's so important that we sing songs that actually work the truth of who God is and who we are in light of him down into our hearts. We sung this before. When we sung the first song that we sung today, do you remember this line? Tune my heart to sing your grace. Because we have out of tune hearts. <laughs> And we need Jesus to tune them up. And one of the ways actually that he says that he works on our hearts is that we sing together. We gather to worship him. And when we gather, we are formed. Friends, Jesus has been raised. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is reigning and enthroned forever. He is currently at work in this world. And we if we belong to him, have been raised with him. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. Since that is true, 
Let God's word and his people and his worship form and shape your hearts so that we might take off what is inappropriate and put on what is truly beautiful. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, what good news it is of what you have done that then has called us into a life that that is appropriate for who we are. Lord, we know that it is not the way that we dress ourselves that changes our hearts. It is the change in our heart that that flows out of us that, Lord, uh, then shows up in the way that we clothe ourselves in love and humility and kindness and forgiveness and all of these great things. So, Lord, because of that, we ask that you would go to work on our hearts. Produce not just orthodoxy in our thinking. Produce not just orthopraxy in our lives, but, Lord, produce orthocardia, the right heart, a heart that is centered on you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.